0: It's philosophy talk. Mama died today, or maybe yesterday. I'm not sure.
1: The Stranger, the Plague, the Fall, the Myth of Sisyphus, Albert Camus and the Absurdity of Life.
2: What if we're just a bunch of absurd people who are running around with no rhyme or reason?
1: Camus says life is absurd, so can it be worth living? The first step
0: for a mind overwhelmed by the absurdity of things is to realize that this feeling of strangeness is shared by all men, and that the entire human race suffers from a division between itself and the rest of the world. Is your life just a rock you have to keep pushing up the same hill over
1: and over again so it won't roll back over you? Our guest is Robert Turetsky, author of A Life Worth Living, Albert Camus and the Quest for Meaning. Camus and the Absurd. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're here at the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing
0: conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner at Stanford, where Ken is a a young, vibrant professor of philosophy, and I'm a broken-down emeritus professor of philosophy.
1: Oh, John. (laughs) Today, we're thinking about the influence of the existentialist philosopher, so-called Albert Camus.
0: Camus tackled one of the most fundamental philosophical problems there is. What is the meaning of it all? What's the meaning of existence?
1: John, that's a really deep question, but, you know, Camus gave an answer that's pretty darn depressing. He thought that life has no meaning. It could never have any meaning. Nothing we can do could give it meaning. The very search for meaning is absurd. Well, he kind of had a point, don't you think? No, I don't think, actually. What would be the point of living if you actually thought that life is absurd?
0: Spoken like Camus himself, he famously said there is only one serious philosophical problem, and and that is suicide. He decided against it, by the way. He was haunted by the question of whether suicide... Could be the only rational response to the absurdity of
1: life. Yeah, but supposed we reject the presupposition that life is absurd? Shouldn't we address that first? Don't you think? Sure, go ahead. Got any
0: good ideas for what could give life meaning? I know you well enough, Ken, to think that you're not going to point to God or
1: religion. Well, not for me personally, but whatever floats your boat, whatever you, wherever you can find meaning. If it's faith that gives you meaning, go ahead. That's fine with me.
0: Well, you're confusing genuine meaning with comforting illusions. There are plenty of those. At least, that's what Camus would say, I think. If there's no God, he can no more provide meaning than Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy. Yeah,
1: but what if there is a God? Then can't he provide meaning? Well, you know,
0: if God exists, then, you know, frankly, he's he's a pretty lousy, incompetent God. I mean, just look at all the pain and suffering in the world. If he does exist, he's either an imbecile or a psychopath. (laughs) Well, maybe I'm overstating it. But at any rate, his existence could only make life even more absurd. I mean, what's this guy got in
1: mind? Look, okay, look, let's not debate that. Let's set God aside for a second, however psychopathic he might be. But there are other possibilities. I mean, think of relationships with other people, family, friends, communities. We love other people. They love us back. We care for them. That's why we keep going. That's why we live. That's what gives our existence meaning. Temporary respite at best,
0: they're all going to die. It's, they're they're going to die eventually. Can you know that? Nobody likes to think about it, but let's face it, every single person you know and love, every single person on earth today is going to die, and a lot of them will suffer a lot along
1: the way. How's that anything but absurd? Man, you're in a sour mood today, John. I, look, look, let's suppose I grant you, just for the sake of argument, mind you, that life is, in fact, absurd. I still don't see how that means that suicide is the answer. I mean, come on, consider Nietzsche. He thought life was meaningless, too, but he, he thought we could give it meaning that it didn't otherwise have by embracing illusions. I mean, he that's what artists do, he said. they Their trick is to know how to make things beautiful when and they're not at all beautiful in and of themselves.
0: Well, as Ogden Nash said, uh, Nietzsche is peachy, but liquor is quicker. But those are all cowardly and dishonest ways out. The absurd hero, Camus' character, need take no refuge in the illusions of art or religion. He openly embraces the absurdity of the condition. He's Sisyphus, condemned for all eternity to push a boulder up the mountain only to have it roll to the bottom again and again and again and again. The hero fully recognizes the futility of his task, but he willingly pushes it up each time it rolls down. (laughs) That's a solution? That's an answer to the problem of absurdity? Well, at least it's an honest confrontation with the truth and a defiant refusal to let that grim truth destroy one's life. At the end of his myth of Sisyphus, Camus says that we have to imagine
1: Sisyphus happy. Happy? Happy? Really? Maybe I just don't have enough imagination, but I actually can't see what keeps Sisyphus going in this story, let alone makes him happy.
0: Well, I guess we ought to know more about Camus, about this thinker and writer. You know, he was often regarded. He's often regarded as one of the great existentialist philosophers, although he hated to
1: be called an existentialist or a philosopher. So, well, who was this guy? Who was the real Albert Camus? We sent our roving philosophical reporter, Shuka Kalantari, to learn more about the man behind works like The Stranger and The Myth of Sisyphus. She files this report.
2: In the early 1940s during World War II, France was occupied by The Nazis. German soldiers marched the streets of Paris. Train stations were being bombed. Café doors were shuttered. And Albert Camus was at a house party. Camus would head to a friend's house to drink, dance, and perform live theater with folks like Pablo Picasso, Jean-Paul Sartre, and Simone de Beauvoir.
3: Theater was one of the things that kept them going, you know, in the midst of occupied Paris.
2: That's Andy Martin, a Cambridge University professor and author of The Boxer and the Goalkeeper, Sartre vs. Camus. He says theater was an outlet for artists and intellectuals during wartime.
3: It was one of those things that you could just about get away with that got past the Nazi censors, particularly if you made it fairly obscure and existentialist, and they they didn't really know what it meant.
2: (laughs) But Camus didn't just perform plays. He also ran a French resistance newspaper and was a well-known author. In 1942 he wrote The Stranger, his ode to absurdism, the belief that life has no inherent meaning. The book is about a French Algerian man who kills an Arab man for no reason.
0: I realized that I destroyed the balance of the day, the perfect silence of this beach, where I'd been happy. And I fired four more times at the lifeless body, and the bullets sank in without leaving a mark.
2: Camus was born and raised in Algeria. He lived alone with his illiterate mother, who cleaned houses to make ends meet. He was a star soccer player as a kid, until he got tuberculosis. After that, he focused solely on writing and working for a socialist newspaper. By 1943, Camus was living in Paris, estranged from his wife in Algeria because of the war. That's when he met Jean-Paul Sartre. They immediately hit it off, and would spend hours at Café de Flore, talking about politics, theater, and the ladies. Camus and Sartre were both kind of playboys. All was well until they both had their eye on the same girl, Wanda Kosakovich. Sartre dated her first, and gave her a role in his play, The Fly.
0: Oh, where'd you come from? Algiers. Oh,
1: I'm from Paris. Have you left anyone down there?
2: Yes, my wife. Then Sartre made the bad decision of asking Camus to direct a play that starred Wanda. Bad, because even though Sartre was a playboy, he was short short frumpy and kind of looked like an ogre.
3: Like something hanging on the outside of Notre Dame Cathedral basically, whereas Camus was the Bogart of his generation among French philosophers. And, you know, Vogue magazine wanted to photograph him and and so on. So he had very much the kind of, you know, Hollywood movie star looks.
2: Sartre had spent three years trying to seduce Wanda. Then Camus shows up and seals the deal in less than an hour. You know, right in
3: front of Sartre, she, she fell for Camus in a big way, and this did cause a certain amount of bitterness and resentment on on Sartre's side.
2: Martin says war provided a common enemy for Camus and Sartre. But with the Nazis gone, all the two had left were a lot of opposing viewpoints. The final nail in their friendship coffin happened when Camus published a critique of totalitarianism, which Sartre took as a personal attack on his own Marxist beliefs. They never spoke again.
3: Although they fell out, they remained conscious of what the other one was doing all the time. And I think that's very often true of, of you know, relations of our own, that, that where you break up with someone, but you nevertheless frequently think, oh, well, what is that person doing or thinking right now?
2: Albert Camus died in a car crash in 1960 at the age of 46. And though they weren't on speaking terms, it was Jean-Paul Sartre who wrote Camus' obituary... He wrote, Camus and I quarreled, but a quarrel doesn't matter. It's just another way of living together without losing sight of one another in the narrow little world that is allotted to us. Sartre never forgot about Camus. And half a century later, neither have we. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Shuka Kalantari.